Mark chapter 10. Uh, We're going to be looking at verses 32 through 45 uh, in the text. I look forward to doing this with you. It's a great text of Scripture. We did read a parallel account. You'll notice a few differences as we go through this uh, text. I'll explain some of those differences to you as we work our way through it. As we come to verses 32 through 45, we come to Jesus' prediction of his death. If you remember correctly, actually, Jesus predicts his death three times in the middle of Mark's gospel, once in Mark 8, once in Mark 9, once in Mark 10. And so we come to the last prediction today. Immediately following his prediction of his death, uh, the disciples will fail again, and and then Jesus will have an opportunity to teach us about being a true uh, follower of his. Uh, Do you remember playing the game Connect the Dots as a small child? Perhaps some of you still do this just for fun. Um, In this game, I know it might be hard to see behind me, there are millions of dots on the one side and then uh, form of a picture on another. In this game, someone strategically scatters dots on a page, then puts numbers next to them to indicate how these dots should be connected. Sometimes these can be quite difficult, like the one uh, on your right there. I thought, you know... As I was looking at that, I thought, you know, it's almost like uh, someone just randomly put dots down in numbers uh, just to play with someone. Uh, But eventually, or normally, these connected dots form a picture. In these texts that we've been looking at, Mark 8, 9, and 10, Mark engages in a bit of literary connecting the dots. Connecting the dots. The dots are arranged in this order. One, Jesus foretells his own gruesome death. Two, the disciples fail And then three, Jesus teaches about true greatness. I think the point of the game of connecting the dots uh, is not necessarily to see the dots or to connect all of them, but it is to see a picture. Today, we are going to connect the dots and see the picture uh, of a true follower of Jesus. That's what Jesus is doing in Mark 8, 9, and 10. As we come to this section... And verses 32 through 45, I think it's best to treat them as one. There uh, there are a lot of verses, but it's one section. I think you can see this in your Bibles by looking at Jesus' first words in the text and his last words in the text. So look at verse 33. Verse 33, Jesus says, Saying, see, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered. Then you go to his last words in verse 45. Way down to verse 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. Here, the title, Son of Man, is at the beginning and the end of this section to hold it all together to help us see that this is a topic under consideration. And so we're going to say more about this title as we go along, but I just want you to know it's all one section. So let's jump in. First, we see the prediction of Jesus' death in verses 32 through 34. So look in your Bible at verse 32. It says, And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days he will rise. 
As we come to this account of Jesus' death, this prediction, um, we come to a more detailed account. There's more here in this one than any of the others, and it's more heightened in its tone. I think you can see it's more heightened in its, in its tone than Mark 8 and 9 by, in several different ways, but, but first of all, by seeing Jesus is making progress on his journey to Jerusalem. Remember, Mark's gospel is set up where Jesus is journeying toward Jerusalem where he will be crucified. The first prediction of his death in Mark 8 occurs way in the outer regions of Caesarea Philippi. If we were to look at Mark 9 in the prediction of his death there, it occurs in Galilee. This prediction occurs where? It says, as they're on their road, on the road up to Jerusalem. They're nearing Jerusalem. And so we see this kind of things are starting to progress. It's starting to heighten intention. Mark portrays this last prediction as occurring on the final ascent up into the city. If you look in your Bibles at verse 32, it says, while they're on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. Here, Mark has Jesus walking ahead of the disciples and the others who were following him. I think this description of Mark's gospel, this phrase, Jesus walking ahead of them, portrays that Jesus is on an eager death march to the city of Jerusalem. We don't have the time, but if we went to a parallel text in another gospel, the other gospel writer adds the word resolutely to describe Jesus heading to the city. Jesus is resolved to go to the city. Instead of flinching or pausing to do God's will, he presses forward. He walks ahead of them which indicates Jesus' radical commitment to obey the will of God. I liked how one commentator of the New Testament said about this phrase. He says, Jesus' face is set for the destiny that awaits him. He has counted the cost, and nothing will stop him on his march to the cross. Nothing will stop him. I think we know this for several reasons. We know this because of the way that people respond to Jesus in the text. You see how the people respond? It says that the disciples, uh, they marvel or they're amazed. And it says that the others who were following were frightened. Now, have you ever, let me go back just a little bit. Have, have you ever been uh, amazed or frightened at someone's relentless pace or stamina while walking? Uh, for me, when I ask that question, I think back to my, my, my early teens and some of my first hunting expeditions uh, as, a, as a young man. I remember uh, as a young man being led in these hunting expeditions or hunting drives to kick out deer. And I remember being led by some elderly men, sometimes like even grandpas, okay, who were much older than I. And I remember thinking, what's wrong with these men? Why are they walking so fast? I mean, when are they going to slow down? When's lunch? Why am I here? I asked a lot of questions uh, when I went on these sort of drives. Perhaps you have your own story of trying to keep pace with someone who was driven to get to a location. I remember hearing a deacon just this week tell a story like this about an elderly man who pushed him in one way as, as he was hunting. When this text, it, it says the others who were following in the text, later on, 
I, I think the others who are following are probably, this is a, an indication or, uh, of an anonymous group of men and women who are traveling along with Jesus in his travels. This would include some women. We're going to find out later on. It includes the, at least the mother of James and John. So this group of people are following. It says The text says that they are fearful or they are afraid. I think what's going on here is this group of people senses that something major is going to happen. I mean, Jesus is like bolting toward the city. He has a sense of resolution, and they're afraid something's, com- something's going to happen when this man gets to the city of Jerusalem. I think one commentator by the name of Robert Stein captures the disciples' response well. The 12, he says, Jesus' sense of destiny and desire to fulfill God's will results in reverential awe on the part of the disciples. In other words, Jesus' radical commitment to fulfill the will of his Father in an unflinching way and take these steps to the city inspired the disciples. They were astonished or amazed at Jesus' determined trek to Jerusalem. He has counted the cost, as Aiken says here, he's counted the cost in Rovid's quote, and nothing is going to stop him. Just a moment of application, I'd suggest that, like Christ, the way for all of his followers assumes radical cost-counting commitment to perform or to do the will of God. And in a moment of application, I just ask you some questions. You know, as I look around, I wonder, where is this same sort of spirit of radical commitment to God in our world today? Where are the Christians who will put commitment to the Lord before their dreams and personal comforts? This is the way of the cross, as many of the commentators would describe. This is a way of the cross. And And this way of sacrifice for the good of others, for the glory of God, it does not seem to be very appealing to believers today, at least in our portion of the world. Perhaps that's the key. We should go to the remote regions of the world, to the disadvantaged, to the uneducated, to those who don't have much, to find someone whose heart is burning with resolve to know Christ and to step forward again and again in radical commitment, even if it means trials and difficulties in their lives. Men and women, to follow Jesus in Uh, with, with any degree of integrity means that we will sacrifice it all and bear difficulties in our service for him. We'll follow in his steps. We've been singing about it all morning. We'll follow in his steps and bear the cross, bear our cross for him as well. The next thing that Jesus does in this text is he takes the 12 aside and he explains to them one last time what's going to happen to him. He explains, people will condemn him, they'll deliver him over, they'll mock him, they'll spit on him, they will flog him and kill him. If you read this very detailed description of the death of Jesus, the predicted death of Jesus, I would just say this, I think it would take, it would be really hard for anyone to miss the cumulative weight of what he said. But as I look at verses 35 through 41, I, I'll say this. The disciples do miss it. They miss it. 
This, I think this can be seen in these verses, and it starts with the failures of two of the 12, James and John in verses 35 through 40. So look down in your Bible, see the failure of the disciples. It says, and James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit, one at your right hand, one at your left in your glory. Jesus said to them, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I'm baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink you will drink and with the baptism with which I'm baptized you will be baptized. But to sit on my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it's for those whom it has been prepared. It appears here that James and John are not paying attention to what Jesus just said. Or another way of looking at this, this is, this is what I think happened. I think that they hear the title, Son of Man, at the beginning of his statement, and they don't hear anything else. I don't think that perhaps they should be blamed too seriously for this, however, because the, the same title, Son of Man, is used repeatedly throughout the Old Testament to describe the messianic authority. When, when you hear the title, Son of Man, in the Old Testament, you think messianic authority and coming kingdom. I want to show you one of these texts. Why don't you turn over to Daniel 7 for a moment in your Bible. Go to Daniel 7. We're going to look at just two verses there in Daniel 7. And, and so uh, I, I say often in the Old Testament scriptures, before the New Testament was even formed, you would find this title, Son of Man, to describe the future Messiah. And here Daniel's a prophet, and he's predicting the coming of the Son of Man who will come with power. He will come and have a conversation with the Ancient of Days that we sang about this morning. Look at Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14. Daniel 7, 13 and 14. Daniel says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him, the son of man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom so that all the people's nations' languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall never be destroyed. See, his prophecy of Daniel, he says, let me just describe to you the son of man. When you think son of man, you should think kingdom, dominion, glory, stuff that will never pass away. So back in our text, perhaps when James and John uh, hear this, they're like someone who only hears the very few, few first words of a conversation we have with them. I mean, have you ever talked with someone like this? In full confession, I used to have an employee who would do this. I would begin a conversation with him, begin giving instructions to him about what to do, and I could count on it just about every time, about the second sentence, second full sentence, he would shut me down and he would just gloss over you just kind of stare at me in his eyes, you know, and I'm like, I'm saying stuff, but I know that he's not even hearing it. I remember I used to occasionally just throw in some nonsensical things just in the conversation, just to have fun. I mean, if he's not going to listen, I can at least have fun in the conversation. Have you ever met someone like this before? I think James and John, they hear son of man, and they're thinking, oh, kingdom, authority. Authority. 
Their conversation, though, involves three stages. I want you to just look at these very quickly. First, they ask Jesus to do something. They say, teacher, we want you to do whatever we ask of you. I think that question, that request is immature and manipulative. Have you ever heard a child ask something like this before? Mom, I want you to do something for me. Will you promise me that you'll do it? Will you promise me? And a, a wise mother will say, well, what is it? I'm not going to promise something before I know what it is. And Jesus wisely here pushes back, and he asks them to be more specific. So secondly, James and John clearly portray their self-centeredness when they expound on the nature of their request. What did they ask for? They asked for seats of honor, one at Jesus' right side and the other at his left. If their first statement was uh, immature and manipulative, this is a greedy play for power in God's coming kingdom. It's interesting to me, before we get into their request, that in the parallel text that we had read this morning, it was actually the mother of James and John who brought this question to Jesus. Okay, I actually think the best way of seeing it is all three of them come together and they're all asking Jesus for this. But their mother was encouraging these boys' aspirations for personal greatness. Okay, that's the Matthew text. And let me just make an application here just very briefly to parents. Parents, don't be like this. Don't encourage your children to have aspirations for their own greatness. Don't foster self-centered ambitions in your children. Instead, encourage them to give their life in service to Christ. Encourage them to be a servant for Jesus. For Christian parents must value true greatness in their children. Think of this mother. She wants something for little James and little John in the kingdom. She wants them to have significance and preeminence in the kingdom. Yet I think it's better for parents to to truly desire greatness as defined by Jesus later in this text. Greatness that involves humble and radical lifelong service to Jesus. So parents, that's our message We'll make it even more clear here in just a moment. Regardless, James and John are also involved in this. It's their mother, yes, but James and John are there, and they ask as well. I mean, can you imagine their questions? Imagine James and John and the mother just kind of taking Jesus a little bit aside. The other ten can hear it. We're going to find out about that later. Maybe someone like James starts a conversation. Yeah, yeah, uh, Jesus, th- thank you for all that stuff about, like, the kingdom stuff, the messianic stuff. We don't understand all that, but... We're just wondering if you could get us some good seats in the kingdom, your glory. And then John, we're just trying to get ahead of the game here a little bit with, with some reserved seats in the kingdom. Do you think, Jesus, do you think you can help us? Isn't it funny that some people always just have the best seats? They just have to have the best seats? Well, the seats that they're asking for are seats of honor. Seat at the right and left of the host at banquets would be a seat of honor. Here, however, I think that they they don't have a banquet in mind. They have a throne room in mind. A throne room in mind. They want a throne seat on the right and on the left of Jesus in his kingdom. Make no mistakes about it, men and women. The sons of Zebedee, they want thrones. 
Jesus' response, however, here is that they, they don't even understand the nature of what they're asking. They don't, they don't understand the nature of what's going on. And so Jesus explains that he's going to die in Jerusalem. And so he asks them if they're ready to drink of that cup and be baptized with that baptism. I think with these two metaphors that he uses, the, the baptism and the cup, that they're, they're roughly synonymous. And there was one commentator that really helped me this week. His name is William Lane. Lane described it this way. He says, uh, he says, to share someone's cup was a recognized expression for sharing his fate. Sharing a cup means you're going to share the fate of the person. So with these metaphors, Jesus is asking James and John whether they are prepared to suffer the same fate that he will. Like this might speak of the possibility of their gruesome or grueling martyrdom and suffering for his name. Finally, then, the way the conversation goes, James and John respond with a brash statement. They say, we are able. We are able. Those three words represent one word in the original, one word that's translated with these three words. It's the same word that Jesus used in asking the question. He just asked, are you able? And they say, able. We can handle this. We're ready. We're prepared. I think their response here is brazen, naive, and uninformed. They've not only misunderstood Jesus completely and what's going on in his life, they don't understand their own weakness. But then Jesus explains here to them, he says, okay, you will indeed suffer in this way. A little bit later on in Acts, the book of Acts, you could read about the martyrdom of James at the hand of Herod. James, a brother of John, is martyred for his belief statement, Jesus Christ, and John is boiled and exiled to Patmos later on in his life. But, but Jesus says, uh, the Father is the one who will determine the best seats in the kingdom. We can't give those things away, but the Father determines those things. So you got the failure of these two, James and John in the text, but their failure is not the only one. Um, I want to see how the 10 respond in verse 41. Look down your Bible at verse 41. It says, and when the 10 heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. The text says here that they became indignant, and I want to look at that word for just a moment. This word indignant uh, pictures the strong response, their strong response against what these brothers and their mother did with Jesus. Uh, I think, though, instead of feeling bad about what's going on with Jesus and the awkward situation that he is in, they are moved, this is, how I, uh, this is how I think you can take the word indignant, they are moved with envy, en- envy or jealousy. They're moved with envy or jealousy. Uh, one of the ways I think you could translate this, this word indignant is it is jealousy that produces anger. You say, well, where do you get that definition? That is my own definition. Where do you get that? Well, just by looking at it in some other places, this word indignant. You could write down a few references today. You could write down Matthew chapter 26 and verse 8. Matthew 26 and verse 8. Uh, there, in that text, the disciples are moved with indignation. They're indignant. But in that particular case, they're indignant because someone breaks a bottle of perfume and pours it over Jesus' feet. I think what we find out in this text is that they are jealous at the attention given to the person who's pouring this expensive perfume at their feet. And so then they begin to ask piercing questions about, you know, not piercing, just questions that, about this practice and the extravagance of it. They're jealous and it moves them to anger. 
Another text you could write down is Matthew 21, verse 15. You could look that up this week. Matthew 21 and verse 15. That text, you've got the scribes and the Pharisees who are moved with indignation. That is, they see how much excitement is going on in the temple because of the works of Jesus. They see how many children have been healed by him, and they become indignant. They are jealous at the attention that Jesus is getting, and they move to have him killed. And so as we come to this text, we come to the response of the ten, them being indignant, I think, means not that they're sorry for Jesus about this doting mother and these two sons, they're just really jealous that this, these men ask this question. Again, one commentator described it this way. They're not angry because of the two brothers' callous and sensitivity to Jesus, but because James and John have beaten them to the punch. They want the best seats in the kingdom. Okay, and so you see repeatedly in the text these failures. I think these failures provide one more opportunity for Jesus to teach then about being a true follower. And I want you to look at verses 42 through 45. We'll go quickly through these verses. Jesus is teaching about being a follower. So then Jesus called them to him and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Here in his final teaching, Jesus explains that while the great ones in their culture demand service, they lord it over people, they show their authority, that the kingdom of God is fundamentally different. I think that's what verse 43 says. I think, you know, there, there's plenty of key statements in, in this whole text. I think the beginning of verse 43 is very important. I think this phrase here is very important. But it shall not be among you. He does the reverse. This is what your culture teaches. It's what Gentile lords do, but not with you. And the same is true for us. Not for any follower of Jesus. What we have learned from Jesus is not lording it over. We have learned sacrifice for others. So Jesus is saying his kingdom is different. His followers are different. His followers don't make demands for people to serve them. Instead, the great ones in God's kingdom are those who serve others and are slaves of every other person, slaves of the all. Then in his final explanation here in in verse 45, he concludes with his own example. He says that he did not come to be served. This means men and women, Jesus did not come to size up other people. He didn't size up other people looking around at what people could do for him. Is this guy a ruler? Does this guy have money? Does this guy have a house I can meet in? Does this guy have a boat I can use? It's not what, that's not what Jesus did. Actually, just a point of application here is, do you do this? Do you befriend and reach people for what they can do for you or your family or your ministry? See, selfish ambition can hit any one of us and strike us as we minister for the Lord. We surround ourselves with people who can do things for us, 
People can give us things, make us comfortable. I think the, tr- the same can be true in ministry. But men and women, this sort of selfish ambition is a poison to our souls. It's a poison to the health of any church. And finally, Jesus explains things in a positive way. He says, okay, I did not come to be served, but then he gives two verbs. And these two verbs, if anything you hear today, these two verbs are most important. I'm going to make much out of them as we leave. He says two verbs. He came to do two things, to serve and to give. These two verbs reveal Jesus' intentions. They answer why. Why did Jesus leave his heavenly throne room and come? I think David Garland explains this well. He says, Jesus' death is not a tragic accident or a courageous martyrdom, but a supreme act of sacrifice for all humankind. It's a supreme act of sacrifice for all humankind. See, Jesus gave his life as a ransom, a payment for our slavery to sin and death. He came to provide a, the, the payment price for the sins of all of those who would follow him. And these two verbs, to serve and to give, answer the why question for Jesus. Why did he come? But I want to push you in one last way. They not only do that, I think they answer why and how for us as well. Maybe some of you sitting here today say, okay, that's what Jesus did. He came to to serve and to give his life as a ransom for the many. That's what Jesus did. But why should I do that? Well, that's, uh, I I would just point out in the text that the the way this verse starts give you the reason why. I mean, if you're just looking at verse 45, verse 45, it says, for even the son of man did this. I think the point that Jesus is making is if this is true of someone as significant as, and as important as the Son of Man, then you should do it as well. For even the Son of Man came to do these things. And I think it tells us how. How should we live our life in service to God? Well, we follow these same verbs. We all must serve and give our lives. For him. If you wish to be a follower of Jesus, you must walk the way of the cross. You must die to yourself and live to serve and to give. Make much out of those verbs, men and women, not just for Jesus, but for yourself and your families, to serve and to give. Years ago, there was an elderly preacher I really enjoyed. His name was John Stott. He's a commentator too. John Stott is a very old man, weak in strength, got up and preached to a group of believers in England about this text, about this text, and he wrapped it all up. He says, if there's one thing I want you to know, men and women, he said this, he said, the symbol of the followers of Christ is not the throne, it's the cross. It's the cross. What Saad is trying to capture there is the symbol of our earthly existence on this planet. The thing that, is, the thing that keeps us going is, and, and gives us a picture of how our lives will be lived is the cross, not a crown. And so as we close, let me just make a few applications for us here. At first to our young people, young people are always near my heart. 
Young people, I say this. Uh, You stand at the doorway or the threshold of your entire life. Some of you will live, if the Lord doesn't return soon, you will live 50 or 60 or 70 years more. Some of us think, oh, to have that many years to serve the Lord anymore, right? Some of you will live 50, 70 years. How wonderful it would be for our young people to say that they're going to live their lives in service, Christ-like service, to serve and to give their whole lives over to the Lord. How wonderful that would be to hear that. Parents, would it be okay with you if they did that? Would it be okay with you if they did not become a high-paid professional? A Division I athlete? Important political figure. If they decided to radically commit to serve Christ and to give him their life, regardless of their occupation or economic comfort, would that be okay with you parents? Elderly, to the elderly I say, young people must see that living for Christ involves radical lifelong commitment to serve and to give. If our young people followed you around this week, if they mirrored your steps, would they see someone who's committed to lifelong service to Christ, to give of their life for the Lord? Will you recruit young people to give and to serve with you? And to all the rest of us, I say this text is clear. The symbol for followers of Christ in this world It's not a throne, it's a cross. All true followers of Christ must serve and give. Men and women, it'd be so important for you in the sound of my voice today to consider not other people's lives, your own life and your own commitment to to God at this point, this moment. And for you to say, is that, is that what I've done? If I counted the cost and decided that it's all for him? I know throughout our country today, there'll be tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of people hearing the word of God proclaimed. Yet many of them are not true followers. They're not true followers. They don't look like Jesus. They haven't made this statement. I'm radically committing to give and to serve with my life. Is that true of you today? Think of your own life. And we pray that God will do significant work in our hearts to change us into the image of Christ. Let's pray together. Fathers, I consider the words of Jesus here. This is a solemn moment for our church. It's a solemn moment for this preacher. Our lives are not for our own goals, aspirations, dreams. 
Jesus makes it abundantly clear here. If even the Son of Man came to give and to serve, this must be true of his followers. Lord, I would pray, I would pray for any person here who feels comfortable when they shouldn't be or shouldn't feel that way. I pray that your spirit would challenge them and convict them. I pray that some who are in attendance today would do business with the Lord at this moment, that they would perhaps confess things that they've withheld from him, ways in which they have not been faithful to him, perhaps even truly consider whether, whether they've actually ever done this, counted the cost. Lord, I pray that as we leave here today, that Jesus' firm resolution to walk out before the disciples in an unflinching way to face the horrors of Jerusalem and Calvary would inspire us to step out to give and to serve our lives for Christ. We pray, Lord, that you would do this for the glory of your own name. In Jesus' name, amen.